0: Let's open up our scriptures today, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18 to begin, and then we will go through verse 22. Now, some of you have been raised as Anglicans, or you've been around the Anglican church for long enough that you've been to many different Anglican churches. And whenever you go to a different Anglican church, you will find a punctuation point on different things, you know, if you go to a very high church Anglican service, what's called Anglo-Catholic, which is not us and not me, uh, you will find, you know, a very high punctuation point placed on the Eucharist. They will wear colorful garbs, call it a chasuble. They'll have very fine dining silverware and things. That's very important to them. They put a punctuation on the Eucharist. Other churches maybe put a punctuation mark on the worship service meaning the singing and they will have a full choir you know these are the churches where you see in most you know metropolitan areas where they have a boys choir involved or something like that they love music and so they place a punctuation mark there Many of us maybe were part of the Anglican realignment movement uh, where people that came out of the vineyard movement and aligned with the vineyard movement. Maybe the, the spirit is a punctuation mark that you have experienced in an Anglican church. And there's a lots of free-flowing forms of worship where people can speak extemporaneously during the service. That might have been your experience before. Now, at Trinity, you might be saying, well, there's a lot of things this church does differently. Most of it probably by accident because they're incompetent, right? (laughs) But one thing that we intentionally do differently than any other Anglican church I've ever been to at least, other than, you know, incredible preaching and things like that, is the (laughs) passing of the peace, You know, most of the time, the passing of the peace is just this hinge that happens between the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table. If you are new here or unfamiliar with an Anglican service, we're going to have a sermon. Then we are going to have the creed. Then we are going to do the prayers of the people, the confession, the assurance of pardon. Then we pass the peace before we come to the table. And often that is kind of just seen as a hinge point. It's about 30 seconds. You say the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. And then you move forward in the Eucharist as quick as you can get. But we don't do that. We have a vision that the passing of the peace is actually meant for passing of the peace. And so we allow you all to greet one another to serve one another, to proclaim the peace of the Lord to one another as the priesthood of all believers, as a communion of saints that actually are commissioned to preach God's good news of peace to one another. As we continue in our sermon series through the shape of the liturgy, how the liturgy is shaped, and how the liturgy shapes us, we're going to do something slightly different today. Deacon Carey was going to preach today on um, the passing of, no, um, the prayers of the people, the confession, and the assurance of pardon, but because of an illness, we've decided to do things out of order, so we will get to that, I assure you, but this week we are going to preach on the passing of the peace, and I want to just look at two things today. First, the passing of the peace exists because we bear good news to one another that because of Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God. This is more than just a time of saying good morning. This is more than just a hinge point between the word and the Eucharist. This is more than just a time to go pick up your kids. Although parents, that's what you should do first in the passing of the peace. Pick them up first, please. Remember to pick them up. Pick your kids up and then pass the peace to them. It's more than just that. It's a time where we are commissioned to preach good news to each other, that we are at peace with God through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. But it's not only that, it's also a time in which we proclaim to one another that because of Jesus Christ, we are at peace with each other. In a world that is perpetually torn apart by division, this is a place that because we are united to one man, Jesus Christ, Because we have been brought into one kingdom under him. Because we have been brought into one household and one living temple. We are at peace with one another. And the the passing of the peace is positioned intentionally right before the Eucharist. So that in case there is someone that you are not at peace with in the church. You are invited to first go make peace with them before coming to the table of peace. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18, where we will see all of these themes played out in Paul's teaching to the Ephesians. And I'm going to do something slightly different today due to a mistake, and because of I like the interpretation, I'm going to be preaching through the NIV, although we almost always do the ESV here at Trinity. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision. Which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. And foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our Peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 2 directly addresses this question of peace with God and peace with one another through the work of God. Of Jesus Christ. First, let's look at peace with God. You know, when we use the word peace, I've said this before, but we often mean two things when we use the word peace, and that's in the scriptures as well. First, peace can mean an absence of hostility, right? We are at peace with Germany, but we were not always at peace with Germany. There's an example. There's a lack of hostility, therefore there is peace. However, in the scripture, there is also another understanding of peace, a far deeper understanding of peace that is often used in the Hebrew word "shalom, and I've shared this with you before. The Hebrews use the word "shalom," yes to say hello," yes to, to greet someone, but it's far more than just that. To say "shalom" to someone is to say, "May you be as you are meant to be. May you be whole. May you be complete." You know, right now, there, there, there were three human beings that really had shalom. Jesus Christ had it his entire life, and Adam and Eve had it for a part of their lives. You see, Adam and Eve had shalom because they lived in perfect peace, wholeness with themselves. They didn't have the tension of sin that was ripping their heart apart. They lived at peace with God's world, They didn't destroy the world around them. They lived off of its fruit. They were at peace with God's people. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with one another until they started blaming each other for everything after sin entered the world. And most importantly, they lived at peace and communion with God as they walked with him in the cool of the day. You see, peace can either mean the absence of hostility or and the presence of Communion and wholeness. And it's interesting, Christ accomplishes both for us in our relationship with God. And our passage today shows us look at verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them, meaning Jew and Gentile, all of us, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You know, this is an unpopular doctrine today in modern theological circles, because most modern theological circles have problems. But that's my opinion. Listen, God actually does hate sin. I know we don't like talking about that. I know it makes us uncomfortable. I know that we try to get rid of it. But Absolute holiness cannot be in the presence of unholiness. Because if he's in the presence of unholiness, his holiness consumes like a fire that which is unholy. And because of our unrighteousness, we could not stand in the presence of God. And our unrighteousness actually deserves punishment. And one day you'll come to grips with that if you haven't already. When someone does something so wrong to you that you say, This has to be punished. And in our fallen world and in our relationship with God, our sins cry out for retribution, our sins cry out for punishment. And yet, what does the gospel teach? That the hostility between God and us has been swallowed up in the cross of Jesus Christ. That in the one, all of our sins have been paid for. All of our debt has been swallowed up in the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, this harkens back to to the day of atonement in the Old Testament. As most things seem to in the life of Christ. What happened on the day of atonement? The priest would lay his hands upon the scapegoat and all of the sins of Israel would be transferred to that animal. And that animal would be put to death as an offering to God, as an offering of justice, as a way of their sins being removed. But you know, it's interesting. When any of us put our faith in Jesus Christ, What do we do? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what are you doing? You are putting your hands on the head of Jesus. Each week when you confess your sins, and then I assure you that you have been forgiven, that is a proclamation that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all the sins that you had committed and will commit, your hands went on to his head. His perfect head. His spotless head. His, hand that, his head that was caked in blood because it was wearing a crown of thorns. And he carried all of your sins to the cross. Martin Luther said that Jesus was the most sinful man to ever live. Now, that doesn't mean that he ever committed a sin. Rather, it means what 1 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who had no sin carried the sins of the world to the cross. And family, when we proclaim the passing and the peace, notice when it happens. It happens right after the assurance of pardon. You confess your sins. I invite you, kneel. Or even today, I might invite you, extend your hands to remember that your sins went upon the head of the innocent lamb, Jesus Christ, the innocent scapegoat, Jesus Christ. And then I assure you that you are forgiven. And then what do you do to each other? you continue the priestly work of assuring each other that you are forgiven. The priesthood of all believers look each other in the eyes and say, the peace of the Lord be with you. What is that proclaiming? It's proclaiming you are at peace with God because your sins are forgiven. Now, how many of us struggle to believe it? How many of us struggle to believe that sin that weighs us down, that carries us in guilt has actually been laid upon the precious head of Jesus Christ and taken away from you? And in the passing of the peace, we get to do something for one another. We get to assure each other as the priesthood of all believers that our sins have truly been taken away. The reason why we give you time to pass the peace is because we want to commission you for this important task, to proclaim the truth that you are forgiven. But not only that, the passing of the peace gives us an opportunity to proclaim that not only are we forgiven, but we've also been given the other kind of peace. The peace which says, now, now you have relationship with God. Now, because of Jesus Christ, you are at peace, meaning you are living as you were actually meant to live as a child of God. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have what? Through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, if peace does not merely mean to have our conflict removed, meaning you are forgiven, you are at peace with God, but also means that you are living as you were meant to live. You are whole. You are who God made you to be. As I said earlier, how were we meant to live? We were meant to live at peace with one another, at peace with ourselves, at peace with God's world, and ultimately at peace with him. Adam and Eve lived in the garden temple. You know, it's interesting. All throughout Scripture, what is the primary image that carries all throughout Scripture? It's the temple. Adam and Eve lived in a temple where God lived with them in the garden. Then when, you know, we fell into sin, what did God make? He made a temple through the tabernacle and the actual temple. And then what happened? We have Jesus Christ himself, who is a literal temple because he is God and man living together. And then what is the new heavens and the new earth? John tells us in Revelation 21, there's no temple. Why? Because the whole earth is the temple of God. Now, why am I saying all of this? To live at peace means to live in the temple of God, which means to live in his life-giving presence. We were meant for communion with the living God. And we, when we fell out of communion with him, all of our destruction and lack of peace that we live in now came into the world. And yet, what did Christ accomplish for us? What did he do for us? He is god And man joined in one body, in one person, the Son of God. And the promise is if we put our faith in Him, what happens? The Holy Spirit unites us to His humanity so that we have access to God. We have more access than the high priest ever had in the Old Testament. He could go have access to God one time a year and for a very small amount of time. Why? Because he would have to atone for his sins, offering a sacrifice. And then he'd have to make sure that he didn't sin when he went into the holiest of holies. Because if he did, what would happen? Bam! He's dead. But what about you and me? We have perpetual and eternal access to God at all times because we have been united to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Look at our passage again. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Remember, it's about access to God. If you're far away, you can't get to him. Peace to those who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. To live at peace is to live in perpetual communion with the living God. And family, when we get to come together and proclaim peace, what we are proclaiming to one another is that you are a child of the living God. That if you've been united to Jesus, your fundamental identity is those who God has chosen to accept and bring into himself. You are no longer someone who lives at a distance looking in. You are no longer somebody who can maybe sit at the street corner and just wish they could be near. You are someone who has been brought into the very presence of God. And yet so often, what do we tell ourselves? We tell ourselves lies about our identity, don't we? We believe the myth that we are orphans. We believe the myth that we are aliens. We believe the myth that we are far and distant from God and he could never accept us. And yet in the passing of the peace, we are commissioned to proclaim the peace of God to each other. That because of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. The passing of the peace is far more than just a time of greeting. It's a time where you all, as the priesthood, get to preach your own sermon to each other. That we are at peace with God because the animosity has been taken away and we are at peace with God because he has chosen to accept us by his son, Jesus Christ. You come every Sunday with a ministry, a ministry of peace. Now, let's continue. Not only do we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are at peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ, but we also see that we are at peace with one another. And we see it through four images. There are four images, and because we started on time, we're going to be able to cover all four. Because I am going, I'm I'm at a decent clip here. Four things. It's interesting. One, we are at peace with each other because we are all the same person. And no, I'm not becoming a Buddhist here. But we are all united to one man. We are all united to the one man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are all one body. Second, we are from one new nation in the kingdom of God. And our ultimate allegiance is not to a political party, but to a king. Third, we have been united to one household. And therefore, we treat each other as family, not as strangers. And fourth, we are united as a common temple built by the Holy Spirit. Now, turn back with me to Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read the whole thing because you see how it all builds. Verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners of the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Remember, distant, but now in Christ. You who once were far away have been brought near... With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you who are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, we humans are incredibly gifted at dividing, aren't we? And if you don't believe that, you didn't live through 2020 and 2021. We are gifted at dividing over political beliefs, over social beliefs, over nationalities, over economic structures. We are gifted at dividing. However, what is the call of the church? The call of the church is to be at peace. And we are called to be at peace because Jesus Christ has actually put us at peace. First, he's put us at peace by uniting us in his one body. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. You know, in the ancient church, in the beginning, that main division was between Jew and Gentile. That was the scandal of Paul's preaching. How can Gentiles be brought into the church? Well, Gentiles can be brought into the church because all of us are made into one person, a Jewish man, Jesus Christ. That's why they didn't have to get circumcised, by the way, because Jesus was for them. If we're all united in the humanity of Jesus Christ, we are all one people because we have one Common person that we are united to. Now, it's interesting in Christianity that doesn't make it so that you can't have difference, right? This was the big question of Plato versus Aristotle the one and the many. This is the thing that Trinitarian theology resolved and also union in Christ. We are all still different. We are unique persons that Christ died for, and yet we are all united as one. And therefore, we are called to be a people united in a bond of peace. Just as we are called to love our own body, we are called to love one another. Romans twelve four through eight says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions, So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with seal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Family, the work of the body of Christ and your service to one another is an act of peace whereby the body becomes unified in peace under the work of Jesus Christ. But second, we also see that It's interesting, and I'm going to brag on you again, as always I do on this. We are called to a bond of peace because we are a new citizenship. Look at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Now, of course, this had to do with Gentiles and the nation state of Israel, right? And there's this image of you guys were really far away. There was this nation state of Israel. But we don't have a nation state of Israel. Well, there is, but it's not in the biblical framework anymore. Rather, what do we have now? The church, the kingdom of God. And what brings peace in any kingdom? Can you have peace in a kingdom if you have two kings? No, this was the problem of David and Solomon's sons, right? You can't have peace in a kingdom unless you have one king. When we proclaim the peace of the Lord to one another, what are we proclaiming? Mm -hmm. That while we may disagree on some things politically, what unites us together is our common peace under our common headship, under our common king, Jesus. And why this church did not divide over coronavirus is because you all chose to have Christ as the head of this church rather than pundits on TV. That's why this church didn't divide. is because you chose to have Christ as your king instead of marketeers trying to steal your money. May it continue to be in this church. May we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters that are having their church ravaged by political divisions. You know, well, I'm not going to go any further than that. Thank you. Thank you for being united in peace. Thank you for making Jesus king of this place and nobody else. You know, this is what the world's looking for out of us, by the way, family. The world is looking to say, is Jesus really your king or somebody else? And the witness that we have in the the world today is in a world of chronic division to say we can be a people of peace because we have a king that we have all bent our knees to. And when we pass the peace to each other, what are we saying? We are at peace because we have one king together. Now, third, we are also saying that we are at peace with one another because we're part of one family. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, I know some of you come from homes that are are not filled with peace. You were raised in families of dysfunction, and it's hard to believe that they can exist. But I assure you, there are families of peace. There are places where love truly does reign, where there are bonds of peace where you don't throw each other away quickly where you commit to each other for a lifetime, knowing each other and loving each other warts and all. You know, this is what we're gonna talk about Thursday night, by the way, how to actually form bonds of joy and bonds of love that unite for a lifetime. But you know, it's very interesting. The passing of the peace is placed right before the family meal right before the Eucharist, right before Christ and me as his representative get to say, family, it's time for dinner. Come together and eat. But what happens right before you pass the peace to each other? Now, the reason why the peace happens right before is because it is meant to be an opportunity that if there is someone in your life in this church that you are not at peace with, that you can go and reconcile with them. Now, this is based on 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup, meaning the Eucharist table of the Lord, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I was raised as a Presbyterian. And what that meant was that before you participate in the Eucharist, you have to examine yourself, confess all your sins before you can come to the table. And that that also did was exclude children from coming. Now, I remember being quite irritated about this as a child, but that's neither here nor there. We don't believe in that at our church. Rather, what is the context of, uh, I forget my chapters here, 1 Corinthians 11. Do you remember the context? Do you remember what's going on that Paul is speaking against? There is division in the church. And rich people are eating and drinking way too much, getting wasted on the communion wine, right? And poor people are stuck outside. There is a division occurring in the church. So what does Paul say? Let you examine yourself before you come to the table. Now, what is he exhorting them to examine? Unity in the church, That is the immediate context of our passage. Now, why is that significant? If this is one bread, one cup, meant to unify the church as the family of God, if you aren't unified, you probably shouldn't come to a table of unity. And therefore, right before the table of unity, what do we do? We invite you to be at peace with one another. You know, I've done this before. It didn't feel good, but it was very good to do. I had someone, something, I was a seminary student. And I said, hey, you know, I didn't confess attack. I want to assure. I remember confess attack. That's a phrase. It means I'm going to confess all these things, but really I'm just throwing things at you. I'm just, I'm sorry I've been unforgiving to you because you were terrible to me here. You were terrible to me there. Don't do that during the passing of the peace, okay? Own it. Say, I've got something against you. Can we reconcile? Let's get coffee later this week. But reconcile with each other. Then come forward to the table. It is there for you to be at peace with one another. And if you are at peace with one another, come forward. And family, that's why I think children should come forward to the table. Because I've never met a church where a church split happened because of two toddlers. But that's neither here nor there. Finally, and I've got my last point, and I've got to keep moving because I have two minutes. We are called to be united as a holy temple. In him, the whole building is joined together together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Family, do we want the Spirit to be alive in this place? Do we want the Spirit to be at work in our lives? Do we want the Spirit to move amongst us? The Spirit moves when the church is united. The Spirit moves when we are in love with each other and a bond of peace. The Spirit moves when we see each other as a common temple and we say, I want to be the bottom brick, not the top. I want to be a stone that lifts others up rather than being lifted up. I want to consider others as greater than myself. This is the place where the Spirit moves. In family, I know that the passing of the peace often feels just like a hinge. It's a movement between something and something else, but it's not. It's a time where we get to preach to one another that we're at peace with God. Preach to one another that we are at peace with one another and to truly seek peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are at peace with you by the power of your Holy Spirit and the work of your Son. Lord, would we truly remember this? Lord, as we confess our sins today, would we remember that our hands have been placed upon your head and you have carried our sins as far as the east is from the west, that we are no longer in hostility with you, but we have been brought into peace. Lord, would we proclaim that peace to one another? Would we live at peace with one another? Would you unite us together to the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.